So with that, I would like to call uh, Dr. Chang back. And uh, will anyone like to kick off with a question? Hi, my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thank you very much for your presentation. It was very interesting. Uh, I'm just wondering uh, how you survived the earthquake uh, near Chengdu. And uh, with that in mind, the water situation in that area is probably fairly stable, being close to the mountains, but other areas of uh, China is obviously very stressed out for water. Could you uh, tell us a little bit more about that and uh, maybe address the Yangtze River being dammed and those kind of things would be really interesting to get your perspective. Okay, thank you. Um, earthquake, we really, uh, we, my wife and I, my wife's here, living in Chengdu that during the earthquake time. And uh, unfortunately, I didn't experience that earthquake myself because my airplane takes off at the 220. The earthquake was 228. <laughs> so I, I, this is one of the <laughs> lifetime events <laughs> experience I didn't experience. But my wife did. Uh, she was on the 10th floor, and uh, she said the building was really shaking right in, in Chengdu. And... Uh, she was trying to save uh, some of the, our uh, stuff. She just keep running around to to grab things. And uh, the last time, last one she remembers, we just had a new water bottle uh, sitting in the in the uh, dining room. She was holding our, her her life on this thing. She said, "If this thing fell on the floor, she got a lot of time to cleaning uh, the floor." But she never thought she may be dead by that time, you know. So that was uh, her first reactions. Um, uh, I was in, in the airplane, so when they landed in Beijing, and I heard uh, people saying earthquake in Chengdu, I said, I can't believe it. We just left uh, two hours ago, two and a half hours ago. That's about flying time. And so I tried to phone my wife and uh, or anybody. The phone all dead, couldn't go through. So really was worried, uh, very worrisome for me because they talk about so many deaths and all the, all the reporting. And two days later, I come back to to Chengdu, and uh, uh, find everything in Chengdu. There is not much damage at all because all the building was uh, earthquake-proofed uh, building, so it's no problem. But my work area is down the countryside. Two of the counties is really severely damaged. You know, some of the pic. If you notice some of the picture, that was one of the places we went there for training. But that 50,000 people town completely became a ghost town. Uh, they, they have nobody. They are not going to rebuild that town. They move away there. They're going to put that as a museum so people can see. One of the clock was right shut down at uh, two, uh, two, 228. So that's our experience. Water in Chengdu is no problem uh, because back to 2,000 years ago, there is a very wise Chinese man. Uh, he designed a, a water structure, not building big dam, but just using very minor structures to divert the water from the big river, reduce the flooding problem, also keep constant water supply to Chengdu and whole plant area. And not up to now, they're still using it. That's 2,000 years ago. It's not a destructive 
it's really a minor uh, changes on the river. And uh, I don't know how he did it because he has no computer, but he calculated precisely that way, and they haven't been changed since 2,000 years ago. So that was uh, uh, water, no problem. But quality may be a problem in some of the uh, area because the pollution problems. Um, Yangtze River. We've been there, my wife and I, we've been there in 95. And just before the dam was building, then we w- went back at 2007 after the dam was building. Um, to 2000, uh, ni- 1995, we went there, the water is really muddy from the erosion. I don't know, it's because the dam improved the muddy River, if they do, they probably all set, settle down uh, before the dam. And that could be a problematic for the for eventually that reservoir could be become shallower and shallower because of that thing. But I understand that the, the, there's two schools in China was debating. One is say we necessarily have to have this dam because the electricity. Also, they was planning to divert the water from the from the water-rich southern China to the northern China. Northern China is very, very starving for the water, so that's probably they're going to build a canal, interbasin transfer. Uh, I don't know that plan is selected or not, but that's the that's the uh, plan they're going to do for that. But there's other problem developed uh, unsee- for un- unsee problems because the water dam building the seawater intruding into Shanghai because that used to be flooding over. But so this is going to problem. There's a lot of environmental problem. And also some people thinking the weird weathers in Sichuan, you know, some place got flooding, some place get dry, maybe due to the dam, but that's no approval. So so this is a, it's, it's debatable. I was talking on, on our table. We won't know the results until maybe several generations later. Thank you, uh, Dr. Chang. My name's Dwayne Pendergast. Uh, you've uh, raised a concern that uh, China might lose her ability to produce enough food for her people, and I would think that would be an opportunity for Canada to perhaps uh, help out by providing some food to them, uh, selling some food to them, make a little bit of money at the same time. Yet uh, our government seems to be bent on... Uh, providing subsidies to convert our food production into the production of fuel for our cars and our trucks. What uh, Will your masters let you comment on the wisdom of that? <laughs> That's really beyond my, my knowledge, but I can uh, we, we can discuss the, the biofuel, whether it's really a truly catching the energy or not. We need to do a completely life cycle of the energy balances part of it. So some people believe they may be not a net gain of energy. Maybe it will actually their loss. But converting to grain, to biofuel, uh, it's been discussed in, in, in many countries, especially food-starving countries, uh, doesn't think this is really for the mass of people, only for rich countries because they're hungry for energy, so they want. But most people in, in China, uh, 
lots of people want to go there to do the biofuel things because you see how much corn they produce there. But the Chinese government say no, food security is number one. Anything excess, we will do biofuel. So, so that's the the thing. Now, uh, of course, and way back time, uh, Canada really in the, I think 70s uh, sell lots of wheat to 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 China. Whether that will be coming back, maybe I I, I don't know uh, on, until it happened. But the Chinese government, the food security is their number one. No matter what cost, they want produce enough food. They don't want hungry people. It will be cause problem for them. Uh, I'm Trevor Page. Thanks very much for your presentation. Uh, and I was intrigued by what you said about part of your project there encouraging farmers' associations. Uh, if one compares China with India, India has very well-developed farmers' associations, a very strong cooperative society, which hasn't really worked at all in China. And you mentioned... Tibet and your efforts there with a farmers association. Tibetans are very free-thinking people. But what about Heartland China? I mean, the middle of the agricultural zone, Sichuan, if you like, or Hebei, or somewhere or other on that that uh, fertile plain. Do you see any uh, strengthening of farmers associations, or is there something which is still very weak? Perhaps you'd like to comment on that. Okay. Um, thanks for, for the question. Um, I, I, I think there is a tendency, the government actually has a new law, allow the uh, economic association to form. Before, they don't. They have their own top-down from the government-organized so-called the uh, farmer association uh, or various associations. But that one never works. The reason is the farmers, producers, doesn't know what for, you know. And they only thinking this is all, not the government wants to take money out of our pocket. But what, what now uh, are the, uh, the CEDA projects or other international projects was trying to do from the bottom down, bottom up, use farmer to organize their own association. They would select what the objective they wanted to be their association for. And the, 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 then also more and more actually developed in Zhejiang province, Jiangsu province. And lots of very effective association actually is forming. And uh, hopefully they will expand even further more to the, to the other part of the, the, the China uh, the, the, they can see that the, some of the farmers really can see that and we even organized the, the tour the, uh, for the farmer himself to go to those regions to learn and they come back and Zuzhen. but let's take people really make an effort to do so you know can be a top down associations thank you Uh, thank you for your talk. Uh, Kurt Klein, University of Lethbridge. 
Uh, I'm interested in your comments as a soil science uh, scientist and on, on the soil fertility. Uh, <clears throat> we did uh, surveys, farm level surveys in in Hubei province, uh, starting in 1993, every three years till 2005. Every single survey that we did showed that the farmers are putting on too much nitrogen fertilizer under any kind of analysis. And and this also corresponds with more broadly based economic surveys done by scientists in California and so on. Um, I'm wondering about your perception. Is this a, a more widespread problem? If so, why are they putting on so much nitrogen fertilizer and what are the long-term consequences of this? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think the overuse fertilizing, fertilizer, special nitrogen fertilizer, is very common uh, in the productive land. Uh, the reason why is because it used to be fertilizer, they don't have to pay. It's a collective. So, so they just dump on. So they have two cropping systems, especially in herbage plant area. They will put the whole fertilizer for two crops in one shot deal because it saves a lot of work. Because then, you know, so this has become really a habit of doing that. But through some of the cedar projects, uh, so-called balanced fertilizations, uh, trying to um, reduce proper amount, but that's still gradually expanding to the area. And the government also have a huge program called balanced fertilizing, soil testing and fertilize. Means they test the soil, what, how much you need, then fertilize that, that amount. But that will take time because you have to realize there is probably 300 million farm household in, in, in China. So to be reached to every one of the corner, it takes time. Oh, consequences, yes, water pollution. Um, we know lots of groundwater is loaded with nitrogen, and we cannot report it. Even their own people find they cannot report it. Hello, thank you for your presentation. I'm Georgina Kneedal, and I have two questions. One is um, the desertification that's occurring in China. Is it indeed as bad as some of the media lets on? And is it um, really hastening the declining arable land that's available? And secondly, if, and this may happen in time, uh, China adopts agricultural practices more like some of our better Canadian farmers are using and a little more environmentally and ecology savvy, uh, will this increase the amount of food that China is able to grow for herself? Thank you. This um, the, the desertification um, uh, question comes in here as a two twofold problem. One is because the overgrazing, uh, like like uh, after the from the collective farm breaking down to the individual, and uh, so decision making is by individual. So individual would like to increase in their wealth. What they do is they increase in the number of the the animals. So cause more grazing, uh, overgrazing problem. So what happened is you have no ground cover, so the soil become desertified. With the climate changes, uh, so I think the desertification in in China is se- serious problem. But whether as much as 
some of the reporting says that I, I, I really don't know because in China it's very difficult to get a real true uh, statistic. For example, the county I'm working on, it's not in the dry area, but in Sichuan. Uh, the county reporting there's a 400,000 head of yaks in there, but in the reality, it's probably three times more than that. The reason is people don't want to show them reporting. The reason why increasing the, the herd, that, I explain one thing. The another problem is because the grassland gradually deteriorate and they have no winter feed. And in those areas, cold in the wintertime. Some year, could be 50% of the animal will die during the winter. So what they do, the next year, they increase even more because 50% going to be die, right? So, so it's a vicious cycle. They know, they realize that. But that's how, how they, they do it. So, so, um, I think it's a serious problem. And Chinese government recognized that too. But problem is with the small land base, now individual land base. And used to be they just moving around, uh, through the seasons. So they are automatic managing the grassland. But, but now they settlement down. And most people doesn't, they even have a winter uh, grazing ground and summer grazing ground. Some of them become so lazy because it's much easier to live in a nice house rather than living in a tent. So they divide their summer land to two, uh, winter, winter side to two parts, grazing one part in the summer and grazing. They don't even go to the summer side. So it's become real problem. But what we're trying to do in my project, I didn't have time to do, is try to reseed some of the uh, grassland to the native grass. Then we can do the haying and reduce the number of sites, make them more healthier, and uh, you know then uh, decreasing the, uh, the death rate so they don't have to keep as much animals as that. Uh, hopefully, we'll gradually, but the project is too short. You couldn't see the long-term effects on them. So sorry. So there was the second part to the question was if China were to adopt a healthier ecological farming process, um, would it be better able to feed itself? Yes. Uh, well, if, even so far now, uh, they are not ecologically uh, sound practices. They're already feeding themselves plus exporting. But if they can adopt it to, to the uh, more ecological way, I don't think ecological way will reduce their production, but it's more sustainable. But they have to realize that we have to demonstrating to them. You don't have to apply 100 pounds of nitrogen. You can probably use 50. It's good enough. Why put 100 pounds and waste your money? So, so actually, probably even better. More, for example, uh, Dr. Klein was saying, you know, why you fertilize so much and waste and cause pollution problems. I think they could, but the problem is how to extend the technology to that. And Chinese is very weak on the extension system. They have enough people, but they have no operation dollar, so they can't go that to the extension work. Thank you very much. While we're waiting for another question, I think Dwayne is going to ask one. I'd like to thank you for uh, all the uh, information. It, uh, it's on. Oh, sorry. Doesn't sound like it up here. But uh, um, it seems uh, Canada and China have a lot of similarities. 
just from some of the stuff you put up there. And that is very educational to all of us, so I'd like to thank you for that. And I have a question later. I'll let Dwayne go first. Thank you, Michael, for letting me have a second. I've uh, always admired the industry of those farmers in other parts of the world that are able to convert uh, mountainsides into farmland with terraces. And when you showed us the pictures of the terraces, you seemed to be uh, somewhat uh, critical of that, uh, indicating that perhaps it was a bad thing to be doing. Uh, did I misinterpret you on the, on your position there? Uh, yes or no? <laughs> yes, the reason is the building the terraces for the land probably should never really farmed, because you know the energy to put into there, and plus the trees cutting down, that's changed the whole ecological systems. Um, I think uh, for a whole whole back to this man can conquer nature, we don't really know what we'll pay in the, in the future. The climate change may be one of the problems because all the tree is gone. And you only have short season of growing annual crop and rather than long-term um, bring the photosynthesis and all those things. So that's right. But with so many people, you have to feed what you do. So you have to find some land to farming. So that's why I say yes or no. So maybe we have to try, strike a balance rather than the whole mountain become that. Maybe we should do like our forest, maybe uh, clear cut in uh, some smaller areas and then leave it. So balance the nature a little bit better. Because that's caused soil erosion, even terrorists. Again, so many similarities. Um, the question I was going to ask was, you ra raised the idea of CEDA, and we discussed it a little at the table, and I'm wondering if you would like to expound a little more to the rest of the people the effects of the uh, cutbacks by the Canadian uh, government in its CEDA um, allocation on China. So you want me to comment on what's effects on? Yes, I think some, uh, people might be interested in knowing uh, the effects that that cutback, though it uh, may, may appear very small, has on China yeah. or had. Okay. Well, the, the, the China, the uh, new policy now is uh, um, reduce the input, uh, uh, the, the aid to China in the agriculture side probably will, the, our projects, probably the last few last ones, um, uh, they will be no further uh, reduced. Even the money we, we think we invested uh, a lot in this project, particular is probably 20 million in five years. Um, looks like lots of money, but relatively speaking, compared to what China put into the whole agriculture, we are really, really a small portion of the project. But China is not looking into the, um, the amount of money we put in. China was wanted to, to, to see how the, the, the government is thinking about China, because if you cut back this thing, they think they lose face, you know. So, and you know, Chinese really don't like lose face. So that probably affected quite a bit on the uh, 
uh, on top of the other policy on the government, probably affected a little bit cool down between the Canada and the China's relationship. Uh, that's one of them. The, 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 the problem. Uh, this is symbolic, really. Um, um, I, I think that's probably... That's, that's good. Yeah. It's just that I, d I hadn't thought myself of uh, China as a recipient of uh, CEDA allocations. Yeah. You know, you think of it as a bit more developed, uh, that CEDA goes to less developed countries, mm -hmm. but obviously uh, not. But but we have to realize, forgot to mention, in, in the agricultural fields and uh, especially in the grassland fields, that's probably, they are still in a very underdeveloped uh, region. The China have probably many regions. Uh, one is really in Shanghai. It's probably just modern as anybody, any city in the Western. But then you go to some of the city in uh, some places in the Tibet or in the Mongolia, they're probably just as poor as Africa. So it's just the, the gaps in China is probably more than the North America and any other West countries. And that's still two, 20, uh, 300, 20, maybe even 100 million people still living in our conditions. I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Chang, for such an interesting and uh, educational, I found anyway, um, topic. And uh, certainly brings us all up to date on uh, China, which is uh, forthcoming. So with that, I thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.